For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Mark 10, 45. Now there is no shortage of leadership advice out there. I went on Amazon this week, and I just looked up leadership books, got 50,000 results. So obviously there is a lot of different ideas from all over the spectrum when it comes to leadership. There was a book saying that you need to be savage to be a leader. And then there was, on the other end, the classic, how to win friends and influence people. And then there were books saying, leadership is really all about your mental intelligence. And they're saying, no, it's all about your emotional intelligence. And then everyone was saying, leadership is just about communication. One even said that the key to leadership is getting up at 5 a.m. I will never read that book. Um, another one said it, it, the key to leadership is about doing little things. A lot of little things like making your bed. So, I don't know. There's tons of leadership advice out there, but not all advice is created equal. This morning, we are finishing up our sermon series, Leading Like Jesus. And we are going to be looking at a scripture that has been called the greatest leadership lesson in history. Mark Moore, the author of the Core 52 book, uh, he said that this verse is his favorite verse. It's this verse that first inspired him to write Core 52. Um, as a reminder, what we're doing with this Core 52 thing is we're taking a different verse every week. We're talking about it on Sunday, and then the goal for you is to memorize that scripture during the week. All right, now one of the greatest things we can do to be uh, growing as followers of Jesus is to be people of the Word, people that are in Scripture. Scripture will help you grow. So read it, memorize it, let it soak into your minds, and then it will change your outlook, it will change your attitudes, it will change your actions. 80% of the people in the church say, yeah, I'd like to know the Bible better. But a lot of them say, but I don't know where to start. Here you go. This is a great place to start. Memorize the core 52 verse each week, and God's word will help you grow. It's, it's in your bulletin every week. So our core memory verse this week, greatest lesson on leadership. It's Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this verse has a great backstory. Jesus and his disciples, they are on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus, he starts by giving them a heads up about what is going to happen in Jerusalem. In Mark 10:33, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise. I want you to stop and appreciate what's going on here. Jesus knows exactly what he is walking into. Like It's not like his death takes him by surprise. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He spells it out. 
He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be killed. Jesus knows what's coming, and he is walking towards it anyway. He's taking each of those steps out of love for us, right? And so he tries to prepare his followers. He knows they don't know what's coming. Let me tell him. And so he spells out what's going to happen, and it just goes right over their heads. Right after Jesus says this, you get one of the most poorly timed, misguided requests in the Bible. Jesus just said, we're going to Jerusalem. It's going to be really bad for me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then verse 35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's poorly timed. I mean, Jesus just said he's heading to his death, and they're like, well, this seems like a good time to make a blank check request. Just do me a favor then. But, you know, before you judge them too harshly, honestly, this is something that I think we've all done, haven't we? Like, when we pray, but we're not really interested in God's will, we're just like, God, this is what I want. This is my plan. I'd like you to make it happen. It's a misguided request. Right? It's not like, if it be your will, you know, it's just, God, I want this. Open doors. You know, make it happen. So, we've all made these sometimes, and, and we've probably all received these requests too from people. Like, have you ever had someone do this to you? Just say, hey, will you do me a favor? And you don't know what it is, but they're expecting an answer, all right? So, we learn from Jesus here the wise way to answer that is not to go, sure. It's to go, what do you want me to do for you? That's what Jesus answers them with. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And then James and John spell it out. They say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, these are the positions of honor that they are asking for. Matthew 20 tells this story too, and it, it tells us that it was actually their mother who spurred them on to make this request. So this is kind of like a whole family affair. Like I can just picture her talking to them beforehand. She's just planning, planning possibilities in her head like, you know, he, he's going to get in power, and then where's that going to leave you? You need to be thinking about this. Maybe you could see if he'll let you be in power with him. I mean, under him, but still with him. You know, you two are some of his closest friends, right? If you ask him, he'll probably give you some good positions, maybe the highest positions, but you got to act now. you got to ask, right? Ask, ask before Peter says something. He talks a lot. He'll, he's close, too. You need to beat him to the punch. James and John, they think this sounds like a good plan, and so they ask Jesus for these positions of honor. And the problem is they are misguided in their request because they don't understand what they're really asking for. They are expecting a coronation instead of a crucifixion. They are expecting Jesus to get some political power. When they said, in your glory, that's what they are expecting. And they're like, we want to be a part of that. We want some government positions too, right? They're power hungry. And they are not the only ones that are. Verse 41 says, the other disciples, when they heard this, they were indignant. They were angry. They were annoyed. And they weren't annoyed because they think James and John broke some sort of humility code. They're annoyed because they beat them to the punch. 
They're thinking, man, we wanted those great positions too. What makes these sons of Zebedee think they're any better than we are? Well, Jesus sees their annoyance. And being the great teacher that he is, he stops because he recognizes, man, this is a teachable moment. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. They stopped journeying for a moment, and Jesus is like, okay, guys, huddle up. And he starts to teach them. He starts to coach them. Jesus says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, we know that this was true just with the normal Roman guards at the time. They would abuse their power. They would lord it over people. They could go up to somebody and say, I'm tired of carrying my bag here. You carry it. And by law, a citizen would have to carry their bag a mile for them. And this is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Because everyone knew, well, the Roman soldiers can force me to walk a mile carrying their stuff. Another example, remember later, whenever Jesus is carrying his cross, his strength gives out. They forced, the Roman soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. That wasn't a request. They could and would force people to carry things for them. So the Roman authorities, they like to lord their power over people. And then you go to the higher echelon of rulers. Who are the people that are presented as the rulers of the Jews during this uh, time in this area? Well, there, there's two main characters. You have Herod and you have Pilate. Now, just to be clear, this isn't Herod from the Christmas story. This is his son, Herod Antipas. Uh, and Herod Antipas, he's in charge of Galilee. And then we have Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea. Now, Mark Moore has a wise observation about leadership in Core 52. He says, those who present themselves as rulers are slaves to their desire to be seen as rulers. Now, this isn't all leaders. This is those who present themselves as rulers, those who are like, yeah, I'm in charge, like those that are finding their value, that are finding their worth in that title, in that power. Mark Moore is saying they're actually slaves to their desire to rule. In other words, they have been mastered by their position. And what we see, we see this truth actually when we examine the rulers of their day, Herod and Pilate. They both caved to subordinates for fear that they would lose their title or their influence. Herod had this stepdaughter. Uh, most commentators guess she was probably a teenager. And she was dancing provocatively for him at a party, for him and his friends. And that alone should make you go, ew, that's a messed up family. Stepdaughter dancing provocatively for her stepdad, his friends, but it gets worse. Her mom was actually uh, already married before she married Herod Agrippa. She was married to his brother. And John the Baptist had said, that's wrong. And he was put in jail for that. Okay, so anyway, back to the story. The, the stepdaughter's dancing, and Herod is taken in, and he loves it so much that when she finishes, he is like, 
that was fantastic. I will give you whatever you want. Man, up to half my kingdom, I'll give you whatever. You just ask for it because you deserve it. And so she asked her mom, hey, what should I ask for? And mom hates John the Baptist. Even though he's in prison, she hates him for calling out like the fact that she's not really married to Herod. She's married to his brother. For calling out her sin. And so she said, I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod had John beheaded. Now this is what you need to understand. First of all, John is obviously an innocent man. But also understand that Scripture tells us Herod knew he was a holy man. Herod liked to listen to him. Herod did not want to do this. But he did it anyways. Because he was a slave to his position. He did something that went against what he knew was right. He caved and did what he would have never willingly done. He did this out of fear. That if he did not, he would lose some influence. He would lose some of his power. Now as for Pilate, he crucified Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and he did that against his better judgment. Multiple times he said, I find no charge against this man. This man has done nothing wrong. And yet, he gave in to the crowds when they threatened him with blackmail. They, they suggested, you will be no friend of Caesar if, if he didn't kill Jesus. Well, Pilate didn't want that because that would mean he could be stripped of his position. And so he too caves to subordinates for fear of losing his power. This rule of leaders, that those who present themselves as leaders are ruled by their desire to be seen as leaders, we see that in our own rulers to this day. Technology's changed, but political psychology, it hasn't. You know, there are a lot of people that are in power, and they're not making decisions for the good of others. They're doing their decisions for the good of keeping their position. But Jesus is about to teach a different way. Notice that when the disciples want to be great, Jesus isn't going to rebuke them for wanting to be great. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to tell them how to be great. Jesus isn't scolding them. He's pointing them in the right direction about how to be great. God in flesh is about to give a lesson on how to be great. And this is where Jesus is so different from every other leader because he's going to teach them how to lead without becoming a slave to your desires for power and to your pride. This is the real key to greatness. True greatness is found not in your position not in your bank account, none of that. No, true greatness, Jesus says, is found where people don't often look. True greatness is found in serving others. In Mark 10, 43 to 45, Jesus says, not so with you. In other words, he says, you don't be like those worldly leaders. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. <clears throat> and whoever wants to be first, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The question is not, are you serving? The question is, who are you serving? Because we all make decisions to serve someone. The question is, are you making decisions to serve yourself, or are you making decisions to serve others? Jesus says, true greatness is found when you don't make decisions to serve yourself, but instead you make decisions to serve others. Because when we serve others, excuse me, we don't become slaves to our desire to stay in power. We're free from all that. Because we realize that people are more important than our position. But the only way we realize that is when we have God as most important for us. When we have things in focus, we see as God first and others second and ourselves last. This is the model that we are called to live by. It's a model of humility. We live for God's glory, not for a position, because we understand greatness in God's kingdom, in the true kingdom, it's never found in positions. It's never found in your power or in the praise you get from men or in their opinions of you. It is found in servant-like service to others. The greatest in the kingdom of God They don't need to yell out, I'm the greatest. They don't need to beat on their chest. They don't need to brag. They don't need to toot their own horn. Because their goal is not to gain others' praise and admiration. They're not worried about their pride because they're not focused on themselves. They're focused on those they are serving. And so they don't care whether or not others are focused on them. One great thing about serving is that serving promotes unity. It's only when we stop being concerned with the focus being on me that we can then focus on us. This church, you know, it it would look really different if I just said, what would be best for me here? What would be best for me here? Instead of thinking of what is best for the body, you know. This is a mark of spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, it says, God equips his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith. So why does God equip us for serving others? That's why he's gifted us. That's why he's equipped us. You know, that, that's what it means when it says equip. God has given you gifts for the purpose of serving others, not serving yourself. What happens when we serve? The body of Christ, which remember that it's the church, that's you and I, is built up. So when we serve others, we are building each other up. And what is God building us up to reach? Unity in the faith. There's always this desire, especially within the restoration movement, for unity. Unity in the church starts with 
service. It starts with serving others, with taking the focus off of me and putting it on us. It's not about what I want. It is about what is good for us. Right? Another reason that service is great is because serving imitates Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. Again, Mark 10.45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. So, if you want to be like Jesus, you serve. You put others before yourself. The greatest man who ever lived taught us how to be great. And he said, you do it by serving. And he didn't just say it, he modeled it for us. From the moment he left heaven for earth, throughout his time on earth, all the way to Calvary. Finally, serving changes you. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And when we have that same attitude, our mindset will become, I'm here to serve. Not to be served. That means that when we walk in the church building, we're not thinking like a consumer. What does this place have for me? What do I like? What do I dislike? How are people treating me? Instead, it moves to a, what can I do for God here? How can I help? What can I do for others? Mindset. When we serve, we become selfless not selfish. And that attitude extends well beyond these church walls into our homes, and at the store, on the job, wherever we are. Any place where there are people, we strive to be servants and to put others before ourselves. What does that look like? I had a list of 101 ways. I'm going to read them all to you. I'm just kidding. No, but I, I do want to give you a few ways. Uh, number one, you Make somebody a cup of tea, do a repair project for somebody, make a meal for somebody, surprise somebody at work with uh, their favorite coffee drink, change someone's oil for them in their car, make a special dessert, feed someone's pet, carry something heavy for them, carry something light for them, send them a card, return their grocery cart for them, mow their grass, help them clean, now, I could go on and on, but you get the idea. We need to be thinking about how we can serve others. Not for our glory, but for God's glory. Not for our benefit, but for the benefit of them and for the benefit of the kingdom. Okay, When we serve, we're loving others, and we are shining our light for God's glory. Right? If we want God to make us great, then we need to ask God, how, how can I serve? And then let him use you to help change the world in small ways for his glory. As we close this morning, we know that the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, he came not to be served, but to serve. And the greatest act of service that he ever did was when he died on the cross, so that our sins could be forgiven. Our God is perfectly just, so we couldn't just ignore our sin, but He's also so loving.
that He paid that penalty of sin for us. Even though it meant the cross, so that through Jesus Christ we might be saved. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you need, if you need to walk with Jesus, if you need to accept him as your Savior, I'd love to talk with you about that. I invite you to come and see me. We're going to stand and sing our closing song at Calvary where the greatest service occurred. Years I spent in vanity and pride Caring not my Lord was crucified Knowing not it was for me he died On Calvary Mercy that was great and grace was free Pardon that was multiplied to me There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you help us to follow the model set by your Son, Jesus Christ, to always look at how we can serve and not how we can be served. May we seek not to get our own way, but to do what is best for everyone. Father, in doing so, may our goal not to be, because I want to look good, but may it be to give you glory and to love others and show them your love. Father, we thank you for the ultimate example of love that you showed through your Son, Jesus Christ, whenever he died for us. Thank you for the salvation that we have through him. And it is in the holy name of Jesus Christ that we all pray. Amen.